let's let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 16, and after many uh, years, we come to the conclusion of Mark's gospel. <laughs> and I say years because I worked on it two or three years ago, and then we took about two and a half years off, and for the last you know four or five months, we've been working through the last four chapters. There are going to be many questions that you have related to some of the things you might see written in your Bible right now. I will work to address them as much as I can. Um, But let's uh, go to Mark chapter 16, and we're going to read verses 9 through 20. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. Believe them, sorry. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Lord, give us clarity in your word. Help us to understand the commission that is before us, to go and make disciples, to proclaim your truth and your forgiveness of sin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I pray that today we leave with a better understanding of your word and that we would not leave here the same as when we came. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, any questions? Because there's a sentence at the start of that passage that you probably have big questions about. Let me get a drink before we dive into all of this. How many of you have heard of a composer about 200 50 years ago, named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Anybody heard of that guy? Yeah. Kind of well-known, right? He was a prodigy. And there was a, a movie made about him in the 80s when I was a pretty young guy uh, called Amadeus. And here, here's the, the thing about Mozart, is that he was pretty young when he died. And he was not to be compared to our Savior in such ways. He was a wild child. He was an alcoholic. He dealt with depression. He dealt with all kinds of issues along the way. Did not, however, change his talents. And he wrote all kinds of music. And it's been said if he lived a normal length life, uh, you know, 70 years plus, that no telling how much music he would have written. Because he wrote in his 37 years amazing amount of music and amazing music it was it was beautiful it was complicated it was is one of those things where now they even have a, a psychological uh, thing called the Mozart effect that if you play Mozart 
while people are studying or, or if they're wild in a, in a group of kids in class, it'll calm the kids down. And, you know, it was just this amazing kind of thing. Well, uh, there, there's some mystery shrouded in his death because it was sudden and it was tragic. He was buried in a pauper's grave, which with the amount of money he likely made in his life should not have happened. But he blew it all on alcohol. And, uh, and wasted his life away. So this talent was um, just basically thrown away. The movie Amadeus, which was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid, it's actually a really good movie. It's got some questionable content in it, as somebody about, about somebody like this might, um, changed some things about his life, and particularly about his death. Because all along the way, there was this story of him and, a, and, a, uh, and another composer who was supposed to be his competitor named Antonio Salieri. And basically, the movie uh, said that, it inferred that Salieri killed him. Short part of the story. If you've seen the movie, that's not exactly how it all comes in there. There's a lot of mystery shrouded with it. And that Salieri was the guy who actually finished up this last piece that he wrote and so even in the last day or two i have been listening to some mozart particularly requiem in d minor because that is the piece in which he was writing when he died it was unfinished and one of his secretaries did go back and finish that piece with edited pieces of other parts of his compositions and what we have ultimately is it the, the movie did, was not accurate in that. It was completed after his death. It was not Salieri. And really, history says that Mozart and Salieri barely knew each other. Okay? So the movie did some things to the story that weren't quite accurate. Sound familiar? Okay? That never happens in Hollywood, right? Let's make this story a little bit better than what it seemed to be. It's like when I fell. People said, you need to make up a good story. I tripped in the grass. Turf monster got me, right? So um, I wish there was a better story for it. But, you know, the, the, they took creative license in creating this story. It's a good movie, made for a great story, but it wasn't quite accurate. Now, where do I get that here? Now, why do I say that about this here? It's not because what we read, I believe, is inaccurate, but it's because of the statement at the start uh, here. If you open your Bibles, Again, to Mark 16, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20, which breeds a lot of questions. And I know some preachers, actually friends of mine, who because of that statement right there, don't even touch the rest of it. But I know you all, and I know that if I did that, you would come up and ask me, what about the rest of it? I'll let Brother Bob handle it from here on. No. <laughs> Here's the deal. We don't, uh, we, it does say some of the earliest manuscripts do not include that. The very oldest manuscripts we have of the New Testament do not include verses 9 through 20. And when we say some of them, it's like two or three of them. When you start talking about the historical context of how the New Testament was formed, Beyond those times, there are hundreds that do include it, and they actually might even include something that 
people tried to conclude it differently. What do we know about the conclusion of the gospel? That Mark likely ended it at verse 8. And that actually holds to the, um, to the character of his, le- of his gospel. Because if he didn't have what he thought was uh, reliable information, he probably wouldn't have put it in there. However, what we find here in verses 9 through 20, while they may not have appeared with the remainder of the gospel of Mark, do line up with what we have throughout the rest of the New Testament. Particularly, and I want you to write these things down along the way as we go through these verses, particularly in Luke and in Acts. Now, if you didn't know this already, I, I, I hope this is useful to you. Luke and Acts are actually part one and two of the same story. We ask, why is John at the end? Because John is the latest written. John was written about 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, more than likely. And it's not written the same way. So the way we have them ordered in the New Testament is that Luke and Acts are separated by the book of John. does not change the uh, fact that, that the way the texts line up and the way they're introduced make them part one and two. The Acts of Jesus, the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, the story of the life of Jesus and then how the Holy Spirit worked through the church in the book of Acts. So many of the things we have actually do line up very well with the gospel of Luke and into the book of Acts. How did that all happen? I don't know. I was not alive 2,000 years ago when they started writing down these scripts. What we do find, though, is that these, the, the Great Commission and the things that are mentioned, which are interesting, I don't know if you noticed when we read through them right there, do line up with other things we see in the Scriptures. So let's start in, um, in verses 9 through 12, actually, uh, are a good reflection of that. Let's start in verse 9 here. It says, Now when they rose on the early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard what that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. If you look at the story of the resurrection initially in, the, in Luke chapter 24, it holds very strongly to that. That uh, Mary Magdalene was the first person he appeared to. We also find those parallels in, um, in John and in Mark. These things are consistent with the entirety of the scriptures. Mary Magdalene was one of the, those who go there. Now, in the previous verses, we see that in, it says Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go in and anoint him. That was on the first day of the week. That's back in verse 1 of chapter 16. We see that these women loved Jesus. They wanted to make sure that his body was properly anointed. And they grieved because of those things. And they would not believe that she saw that the tomb was empty. Pretty consistent with the other accounts of the gospel and also within the text of Mark itself. And if we are honest with ourselves as well, we'll say, why didn't they believe it? Would you have believed it initially to go and say that this person comes up to you and says, that guy we buried the other day, he's gone. You know, we saw him go in the ground. 
now he's not there anymore. It'd be a pretty interesting story for the way we deal with the dead today, right? So when we come here, we see that, remember, the, two, the rock is rolled away, the stone is rolled away for our sake so that they see that the tomb is empty. Here's another part. In Luke chapter 24, we find the account of Jesus appearing, and I said write these things down. Luke 24 is big here, okay? I'm not going to go visit it yourselves because I want you to do some of that work too. Jesus appears to two of the disciples, two, not of the big 12, of, of the lesser of the disciples, those who follow him along the way, maybe the 72 or those who follow. He appears in a form that they don't recognize, and they, uh, they hear from Jesus the story of redemption. And eventually they get to this room, and he appears to them, and he, and he disappears, right? He, he's gone once they realize who he was. That holds up again to Luke 24. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Notice some consistencies here in the accounts. They couldn't believe that these things were happening. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. That's why. The power of the resurrection shows that God did something very different through this person, Jesus. And his resurrection was unlike anything in history and will always be unlike everything we experience. And the, the, the account that we have, the personal experience we have with him, must reflect here, but it's also something that nobody else can take into account for you. We individually must make the decision about who Jesus is. I can't make that decision for you. Just like I can't convince you that these verses belong here. I think they do, and I think they serve a very strong purpose. But you and I are accountable for our own decisions with what we do with the Word. Are you with me with that? You can nod, you can nod off. I don't know. All right, now, here's where it really gets fun in the next verses. And we also see some, some things that, that are held up throughout the Scriptures. And again, in Luke and Acts are those places that we find them. Now, uh, Luke 24, again, we find this, this account of the Great Commission, but he appears to them in verse 14, in Mark 16. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. They were telling the truth. The disciples, with all of the things that they had seen, the 11 as they caught here, remember it used to be the 12, what happened? Judas happened. Okay? Judas killed himself after his betrayal. We find that the 11, he appears to them, he rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. You know, Jesus holds us into that same kind of account. When we experience his grace and understand through faith what he has done for us, because remember what he tells Thomas in the Gospel of John, he says, blessed are you because you have seen and believed, but blessed, blessed are, more blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. 
if you have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ, yet still refuse to believe, this is the same kind of statement that we receive that he makes to disciples. Because you have heard the account of those who have encountered him through his word, through testimony, and yet still don't believe. He rebukes them. That's a harsh word. That is not a kind word. To rebuke somebody means that you are very plainly correcting them and telling them that they were wrong. And who likes to hear that? Nobody likes to hear that, that you're wrong. Can you tell he lives in my house? All right, so, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. But here's the difference now. The 11 see him, he appears to them in this room, and they believe. They recognize him. Remember, uh, and I was talking about this with our youth group this morning. Jesus, when he, when he died, was virtually unrecognizable. He had been beaten. He had been uh, whipped. He had a crown of thorns on his head, and he had been crucified. When he rises, he is glorified, and he is perfectly healed. And the evidence they have of that are the holes in his hands, in his wrists, and the holes in his feet, and the scar on his side. This is how they know who it is. Looks just like the guy that they've been dealing with the whole time, but he's glorified. Can you imagine what the glorified Jesus looked like to these disciples? And the awe in which they sat in his presence at that place. They were reclining, and Jesus just shows up. I think I might pay attention. You might too. And the fact is, is when God shows up in your life, when he's truly there, you can't help but pay attention. You know. Here's the deal. God loves us. Jesus proved it. It's not just this distance off in the awkward nature of, you know, this, this God who is impersonal. No, he came in flesh and he showed himself and his glory to his disciples. And now it's their account by which we read. And it's the account of the church through history that we now hold in our hands. So again, while these verses might not have shown up at the very earliest of the text, they do line up fully with what we hold in the Scriptures. Here's where we're going to dwell here in a moment, but I want to get to through get through some other things first. I'm going to read through 15 through 18 here. And they said, and he said to them, Go into all the world and play, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Here's where it gets fun. And I use that word both tongue-in-cheek, but also because these things might be a lot of fun. In my name they will cast out demons. Did that happen in the scriptures? Yes. You look that in the uh, in the book of Acts again. You see it in the seventh sons of Sceva as they tried to. Paul did those things. Peter did those things. Peter brought healing, as I talked with the kids about earlier. They will speak in new tongues. Did that happen? Yes, Acts chapter 2. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Wait a second. This is getting a little crazy. But if you go to Acts chapter 28, you see an account like that. 
in the first several verses, Paul's on the island of Malta, and a snake comes out of the fire and bites him on the hand, a poisonous snake. What happened to Paul? He shook it off. And they thought he would die. They were waiting for him to either pass out or his hand to swell up. Paul survived. Nothing happened to him. God blesses when we trust in him. And if he has still has purpose for you in this life, there will be nothing that can change that. That's what we find right here. Now, this next one is the one that gets a little different, and I, we don't actually see an account elsewhere. But it, that the, it lines up with what I just said about the previous passage. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Okay, don't have an account of that, but I wouldn't test that. Because what we find here is that this picture is of the persecuted church. And, and I think people wrongly interpret it, and you see it in the back hills and different places with snake handling and things like that, that I think people are testing God's word in, in an incorrect way that actually is blasphemy. Because what happens is that people say, well, God said a snake wouldn't hurt me. But that's not the context in when he said that. He said that in the, in the proclamation of the gospel to the persecuted church. So they're trying to take out the message. They're trying to stop the messengers so that the message cannot be proclaimed. What is God's task before us? To proclaim the gospel. He makes it happen whether or not the earthly powers or the powers and principalities of the air try to keep it from happening. So I am not saying, and I don't think that's what this is saying, that now you can go out and find a rattlesnake and go play with them. I don't think that's smart. I don't like reptiles at all. I know some of you in here may not disagree, may not agree with that at all, but I don't even like like little, little lizards. They just get out of the way. But what we find is that God will fulfill His purpose, and we also see though that there will be those who suffer for their faith, and it might be through these kinds of things. But do you know where the gospel most quickly is, uh, grows? The gospel influence grows most quickly? is through the persecuted church. History holds to that. And it, holds to, and, it, and it even applies to the world today. The place where the church is growing the fastest is where the church is suffering the most. Places like China and Iran and North Korea. Possibly in Afghanistan. And those kinds of places where the church is persecuted, God sends out the seed of the gospel. And some of you may not like this, but it may be a good thing for us as the church in America to suffer a little bit. Or a lot. Because on the blood of the saints flows the gospel. We don't like that as Americans, and it's not a very American thing to say as we start talking about the Constitution. And I am, as I, I love our Constitution, and I love, I love our country and what it stood for in history. But the Constitution is not the Bible. We must realize that we will suffer for our faith if we are are faithful to Jesus, because we are in a war. It's not a war that we can see necessarily. At times, it is. But the church will suffer. 
for their faith in Christ. And when the church does suffer, that's when we end up, it's kind of like a refining fire. It's kind of like the, the, the grapes crushing out the, the, the juice for the wine, right? It's when the purification happens and the gospel takes on an even greater effect than it does before. And I, I know there are people, I can't say I know a lot of them personally, but I know that there are people who pray for the church to suffer because it leads to the proclamation of the gospel. Finally, it says it will not hurt them. It says they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. We saw that in that passage I shared with the kids this morning, Acts chapter 3, with, with Peter and, the, and, and John and the man born lame, that he leapt up after being healed and never walking in his life. God brought that healing. It says in, in James chapter 5 that the church, when we see somebody who is sick, he calls us together to pray and anoint them with oil so that they might be healed. Because the righteous prayer, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Here's the complicated thing about Scripture. We've got to believe what it says. You can read these things as just a book. But we don't really understand it until we start trusting. And God brings us more understanding as we go there. All of these things, all of these signs, which are probably the most controversial thing about these passages, come in the context of the proclamation of the gospel. Telling others what Jesus has done for us. God will not allow his message to come back void. When we proclaim the truth, someone is listening. And it may not be the way we expect it. Probably won't be the way we expect it. But he calls us to trust him courageously and boldly. How do they know the account of this? Again, this goes into the, uh, the the parallel passages for the Great Commission. We have Matthew chapter 28. We have Luke chapter 24 towards the end, verses 44 and beyond. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then we see the ascension of Christ. Again, not something you typically see in history. Only happened once or twice before in that place. There was this guy named Elijah that, you know, Elisha saw rise like that. The ascension of Jesus is a unique moment in history. This is where God in the flesh takes his rightful place. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? He's taken up to heaven. I think we can figure that part out. He sat down. Well, I'm sitting down right now. Maybe that's why. I don't know. But when the picture of sitting is the picture of the completed work. And to sit down at the right hand is the hand of authority. So God the Son completes the work that God the Father sent him to do. When he ascends, he sits down at the right hand of the Father because it has been completed. Again, this is the fulfillment that we have. It's supported in Revelation. It's supported in, in several other eschatological passages in the Bible. And what did they do when that happened? Now, there are things that happen in your life that change your perspective. 
If you're one of the 11 standing there on the mountain and you see Jesus go to heaven, do you think things might change for you? I think they would. Because what we find coming up next is that these disciples who ran away scared no longer walk in fear. They go and they do, verse 20, and they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The commission that God has called us to is to go into all the world. And in the the text in Matthew 28, it's a continuing presence. And it's hard to translate, but he says, Go, therefore, into all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That means he is with us now. The age is not over. The Spirit is in the church. But the verb, and I've shared this before, but some of you might not have heard it. The verb used in Matthew 28 as go, two words, or two letters for us, in the Greek is a continuous presence. So if we were going to translate it into today's language, it would be as you are going and you continually go. So the expectation here is that they're going. So as you are going, you proclaim the gospel. Go. We are always on the move, maybe sitting here right now, but it's 12 o'clock and some of you just realized that your tummy bell just went off. You're going to go from this place. And as we go, we are called to proclaim the gospel. With what Jesus Christ has done for us. On my tie, if you you noticed, I'm actually wearing one today. It's smoke and mirrors because it covers up my belly a little better when I'm sitting down. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news. You're not called to believe it for somebody else. You are called to proclaim it because you believe it. And then that word does its work in the lives of those who hear. Another of the verses we, and this is a funny one for me today. How beautiful, this Romans chapter 10, verse 16. How beautiful are those who are the feet who share the good news. I got a beautiful foot right there. We're called to proclaim the gospel. We are here with purpose. You want to see the world change? Be bold in your obedience. It all goes back to that encounter you have with the risen Lord. While they had that physical encounter with him, we are called to believe their word, to trust in him. So what do you believe? about Jesus. And are you willing to walk in obedience to what he's called us to do here? The commission he gives isn't to a select few. It's to his body. To the church. To those who would hear the message. We want to see the world change. We want to see these seats filled, which it's a relative term on that because it's a reflection of done in the world that makes those things happen. Proclaim the good news. Start proclaiming.
watch God work. Friends, it's not my work that saves anyone. It's not your work that saves anyone. It's His work through us. And we receive great power when we trust Him. I encourage you today to trust Him. To not fall victim to the trap that nobody will care what you have to say. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God has called us to proclaim the good news because there are people who are listening. And he wants to save them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let us love one another the way Christ first loved us. Our Father, you are so good to us. I pray that as we go from here, you guide us to love one another. As we look at your word and we hear your commission, that we be courageous in our love for this world the way you love the world, not the way we would love the world, and, uh, as it says later in your word, but that we would love the world the way you do, and that we would lay our lives down the way you did. Take up our cross daily and follow you. Change our hearts today that we would bless you to walk in your grace, to walk in your grace. I pray healing on our hearts, our lives to your glory that we proclaim your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's bless Jesus.